Hello, I'm Claire White. And I'm Kaya Willoughby. And this is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today we're talking about... Dread Nation! Yeah! Yay! So Dread Nation is the brand new, much-talked-about YA alternate history novel from Justina, Ireland. And it is set in the 1880s, 17 years after the dead of Gettysburg and Chancellorsville rose off the battlefield, hungry for human flesh, which... Sounds pretty cool. I <laughs> know. <laughs> well, it sounds terrifying. It's also terrifying. Yes, in this book, the Civil War was ended uh, so that the, the armies could fight against an undead horde of zombies. Um, Jane, our main character, attends a special school for African Americans and Native Americans to train to fight the undead hordes. Former slaves are mostly turned into soldiers by the white masters to keep the cities safe from zombies. Um, but under the surface of fighting zombies, there's a conspiracy afoot. So it's not just about fighting zombies. It's kind of the tail end of the zombie menace and what, what society's doing afterward. The book concerns racism, sexism, re-education, and the oppressive systems around young people of color, specifically. So I'm going to be talking about history. Claire's going to be talking about Justina Ireland. The, yeah, the writer of the book. The author. And I'm excited because she's she's a bit of a, a, a provocateur, I was, right? She's a potster. <laughs> So I'm, yes. ex- I'm excited to hear more about her. I, however, will be talking about something a little bit different. So in reading multiple articles and interviews with Justina Ireland, including an, at the end of the book, there's a little she, she does a little blurb about what inspired her for the book. Uh, she mentions cultural re-education schools that existed in the 19th and 20th centuries as very influential um, in, you know, the in- inspiration for her book. Right, because these young... Uh, is- young women of color are being taken from their families to and go put to in these the schools, schools. yeah yes. in, in the book um, and the fact that the main characters are at a special school for African American and Native American girls is testament to this you know she has even mentioned by name the Carlisle School which is a famous re-education school for Native Americans and that was in the late 1800s this would obviously be a perfect topic for the history discussion of this book but if you are an avid listener, you would know that we actually already covered this very topic and, and talked about the Carlisle <laughs> School in depth in our Broken Earth uh, trilogy by N.K. Jemison episode. Um, and if you want a really great breakdown in history of forced assimilation and the Carlisle School, I know it's very uplifting stuff, uh, you should check it out. I believe the episode is uh, it's our 54th episode, and it's called The Fifth Season, Magic and Persecution. And James does a great job. James filled in for me that day. He does a great job breaking down what exactly was going on with forced assimilation in the late 1800s. It is a really good episode. Yeah, so if you're curious to learn more about that, which is is heavily in this book, Justine Ireland's Dread Nation, check out that episode, and it wasn't that long ago. I will be talking about another large theme from the book, and that theme and topic is zombies and where they came from and what do they represent in our pop culture. I have been looking forward to us talking about zombies for a long time. It's, I'm, I actually know very little about them. There's So I'm looking at zombies as kind of stand-ins in our culture for other things right now. Mm-hmm. The, you could, the, you could, we could do a whole episode on the science of zombies and zombification and mm-hmm. like really go in depth into voodoo and, Ooh, and, and stuff yeah. like that, which I didn't go too much into. I'm mostly looking at zombies and pop culture. Which Ireland says... That's what her book is about, using yeah. zombies as a stand-in for, stand-in for other problems. Yeah, yeah. 
So the dead coming back to life is not a culturally specific idea. Virtually every culture on earth has some form of this, whether it's ghosts or spirits or the bodies of long dead Norse warriors, Draugar, for anyone who played Skyrim, they're a real, <laughs> they're a real Norse legend. There's also ancient Chinese vampires, people who, who, would, who were killed in unnatural ways who would come back from the dead. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot we have of cool. So many things we can talk about. There's one so day. many things you can talk about one day. Exactly, um, and it's it's all over the globe. Ancient and modern people have lost sleep worrying about the undead coming back to bite them. You know, coming alive and coming to get them. Um, but why do zombies seem to dominate that idea of undead nightmares so much more than, say, ghosts or vampires? Like, yes, vampires and ghosts are big things that we know about. But when we worry about like a, an apocalypse, it's not a vampire apocalypse. <laughs> It's a zombie apocalypse. Um, and where did the idea of a shambling, groaning, walking corpse bent on eating your brains come from? Uh, there is some speculation that the word is derived from uh, West African languages, specifically the word nzumbi, which means corpse uh, in the Mitsogo language of Gabon. And nzambi means the spirit of a dead person in the Congo language. Yeah. But instead of starting in the West African roots of zombies, I actually want to start in the present and work my way backward. Yeah, and, and, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the zombies in media right now. So the most common type of zombie in modern pop culture is the zombie virus infection type. That's the walking dead, right? That's pretty much all modern pop culture zombies for the past 30 years have come from this idea of like a virus zombie outbreak. Right. The, yeah. I mean, that's Dread Nation. That's Dread, yeah, exactly. That's Dread Nation. That's this book that we're talking about. These zombie outbreaks start with some form of rabies-like virus that is spread via bites and causes the population to become hungry and violent. Um, and when you look at the most recent pop culture zombies, they are almost all virus-based zombies. We've got The Walking Dead, like you mentioned. We've got World War Z, 28 Days Later, iZombie, Resident Evil. These virus-based fictional zombie outbreaks speak to a sort of fear in our modern society of globalization. At least this is what I've read. Um, and what can be spread between societies in a world where borders are more permeable. Right, disease. Yeah, with disease, you know, like, you know. Ebola. Ebola, and exactly. According to a Vox article by Zachary Crockett and Javier Zarcina from October 31st, 2016, the zombies in the film World War Z are migrant zombies, quote, moving at fast speeds with a sense of urgency, riffing on our fear of rapid migration rates. Mm. Which, yeah, I mean— some of these are stretched, but you can see connections I can see there. Yeah. Definitely. I, globalization especially makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And also when you look at The Walking Dead, it kind of turns into these close-knit societies. Everybody's got a gun. Everyone's got a ton of ammo. Very don't tread on me, Wild West cowboy sort of self-reliance, small communities to combat, you know, these zombies. That's the only way to fight back against these zombie, the right. kind of globalization. And threat. I haven't watched The Walking Dead. Do you feel like it's romanticized? Well, it's. I think it is. I think a lot of uh, post-apocalyptic shows are romanticized in a way. You know, mm -hmm. it's like everything's tense and heightened and it's scary, but you also want to be there with a machine gun mowing through zombies. You know, maybe you do. <laughs> maybe you do, or maybe I do, or maybe other people do. Um, and viral zombies are an idea that came out of the 1980s and 90s when the AIDS epidemic was really scaring people. Oh, and, yeah. And Ebola was, was really coming to the surface and being reported upon a lot. Um, and in the mid-90s, we had the first Resident Evil game, which featured an evil drug company that had created a zombie virus. 
Mm. And there's there's ideas that this idea of the zombie virus came from being scared of epidemics. You know, what yeah. is AIDS going to do? It's going to spread and, and kill everyone. What is Ebola going to do? Oh, it it's, makes we're so much die sense, especially with the, with the AIDS crisis, especially. Yeah, yeah. So I want to go now back a little further from our present time, uh, back to the 1960s and 70s. Now, we go back another couple of decades from the 90s. Uh, and they're virus-based zombies, you have zombie films with a little bit more of a clear cultural commentary where it's not exactly or explicitly stated where the zombies came from. And the zombie films of George A. Romero are the most popular and the best of that era, or arguably any era. I think if you talk to horror, horror fans, they'll say Romero's zombie films of the 60s and 70s are the pivotal zombie films. They don't get any better than Romero's. Um, and Romero's pivotal film, Night of the Living Dead, which came out in 1968, used zombies to comment on the cultural upheavals that the United States was in the midst of. Uh, Night of the Living Dead used zombies to help capture the fears of the Vietnam War, along with the anxiety of the civil rights movement. So in the film, the character Ben, who is a young African-American male, is the only one of the group of, of main characters who've barricaded themselves in a farmhouse to survive the onslaught of the zombies using like grit and determination and and wit and just staying strong he lives mm-hmm. but at the very end of the film these there are these posses going around this takes place in rural pennsylvania um posses going around trying to round up and kill zombies and he's mistakenly killed by one of these posses which is a large group of white men with torches and guns very reminiscent of the kkk so this was supposed to kind of demonstrate how the anger of segregationists kind of made them exactly the same oh, as zombies. Yeah. You know, that like when if you're if you're following that idea, like you're essentially this angry zombie like, you know, mentality mm. following this group and killing indiscriminately. Now, Romero's next really hot zombie movie wouldn't come out for another 10 years, um, but it was huge. And it was 1978's very, very popular Dawn of the Dead. Um, And that concerns a group of survivors held up and surviving in a mall after a zombie apocalypse. Now, Romero was apparently inspired by going to the mall and watching what (laughs) seemed to him mindless consumers shuffling through stores and buying and buying things, something he thought to illustrate in the movie. And one of the things in Dawn of the Dead, which I've seen, is that the characters, it's the zombie apocalypse and they should be miserable and terrified, but they're also just so excited to be in the mall and to get to like loot and take everything for themselves and it gets very hedonistic. It's very much he's very much commenting on capitalism in our right. consumer society and how it's 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 bad. You know, I don't like horror movies. I say that all the time on the podcast. I think zombies are interesting, but I don't necessarily want to watch movies about them. But you have sold me on George Romero's movies. George Romero was smart. He was trying to say something. I think mm-hmm. uh, any you know horror movie, adventure movie, whatever. If you have a clear idea that you're trying to say and, and you execute it well, it's it's going to be a good movie. Like we saw that with The Witch. Robert right. Eggers, The Witch, you know, it's a horror movie, but he had an idea and he executed it really well. And I think Romero's zombie films are, are the same. So I want to jump back even further now to the 1930s and 40s, because uh, the 1930s saw the very first zombie film ever, and it was known as White Zombie. Um, and that was released in 1932. It also later became the name of Rob Zombie's band, White no. Zombie. <laughs> hey. <laughs> And the subsequent zombie films of the 30s and 40s come from really racist roots, and they use zombies as representations of the other and kind of evil, foreign, exotic, barbaric cultures. White Zombie, the film, concerns a young white couple who go to Haiti to get married. 
There, an evil plantation owner uses the help of a voodoo witch doctor to turn the young white woman into a zombie. And after multiple zombifications throughout the film, the young couple eventually triumphs when they push the evil witch doctor off of a cliff to his death. Now, White Zombie explicitly stoked America's worst fears of voodooism and kind of turned the spiritual belief system into a horror motif. Um, And Haiti is presented as a primitive, orderless place where witchcraft and zombies run rampant. And the ultimate tradition, this idea of Western religion and marriage and these pure, you know, this pure white couple is savaged by this dark magic of the uncivilized. I didn't realize it came from that movie. I never knew that. Yeah. Um, And there's another one. This one's even worse. In uh, Owanga, which came out in 1936, a female Haitian plantation owner falls in love with a white man and she uses voodoo to conjure two black zombies who capture the man's fiance for a sacrificial voodoo ceremony. Her plan eventually fails, and she is strangled to death by a, quote, noble black servant. And the perverse use of zombies in these really racist ways in the 30s makes the roots of the idea of zombies even more sad. Like, I was getting kind of choked up reading about this, reading about what zombies were in the 1930s, and then reading about where they came from. So I want to talk a little about Haiti and zombies. So the original Western understanding of zombies goes back to the slave trade and the sugar plantations of Haiti, which was then a French colony. And it was a terrible, terrible, terrible place. The working conditions on Haiti were so inhumane and terrible. I don't want to turn this into like a torture porn thing. If you want to find out more, look up just just uh, Haiti slave colony. It's really sad. Uh, but they were so terrible that tens of thousands of people died every year from disease and exhaustion. And it just precipitated more and more slaves being brought to the island to replace those that had died. Um, And to a lot of these West African slaves, death was the only freedom you were ever going to have. And many believed that death would release them back to Languini, or literally Guinea, or Africa. So if they died, once they died, they'd be able to go back home and be with their families and be where they came from. But if you committed suicide or perhaps you brought unwanted attention to yourself from your master or from from any powerful bad people, when you died, you would not return to Languni. Your body would be forced into servitude after you died. Oh, gosh. Being forced to work the plantation even in death as a zombie. How did that spring up? It came from voodoo. It came from this idea of like voodoo witch doctors and that if, you know, death is our only escape, what would be terrible is if when we died, we were then brought back to life just to keep working in these terrible conditions. So literally the scariest thing for a lot of these Haitian slaves was that when you die, you would still be enslaved, forced to cut sugar forever. Um, And it really demonstrates how much of a living hell slavery was. And I didn't realize how much of an appropriation zombies were that people. So America invaded Haiti in 1915 and occupied it for about 20 years. And that's how zombies entered or the zombies that we know of entered into the American consciousness. That makes so much sense that we're occupying it in 1915 and the 1930s is when movies start coming out about these zombies in Hades because we've been there. Yeah, because we've been there and and stuff's coming back. And Haiti was always kind of a, a pariah nation. Right. Because they had thrown off their masters. They were a rebelled slave colony. And, and the they rest had of lasted. the world wouldn't have anything to do yeah, with them because the they were so scary. Exactly. And they made up the, a lot of like crazy stories about cannibalism and, and stuff going on there when that wasn't the case. But it, it, it just it really hurts me to think about the idea of zombies, which came from Haiti, which was such a, a nightmare idea for these Haitian 
slaves and then former slaves when they've when they've uh, risen up. The idea that it would then be taken to the states and people would be using it in movies to scare like white people and be like, oh, right. these Haitians, to they make- love zombies and the zombies are going to get you. To make a profit. Exactly. And we could talk all day about that 1915 occupation of Haiti by the U.S. That's another really in-depth topic. But it's hard, and I didn't realize how much of an appropriation zombies were. It does make me happy, though, that Justina Ireland wrote this book, and I feel like is is kind of bringing them back to African roots of, like, you know, this this is something that came out of Africa and reclaiming it in a way. With, you know, the whole virus aspect of it, too. Um, millennial zombies. Millennial zombies, exactly. So I, I'm, I am really happy that you wrote this book, um, and that's about my segment. That was on, so on interesting. <laughs> I had no idea. I had an idea that zombies came from voodoo roots, but I, yeah. I didn't realize that it was the nightmare. Yeah. That oh no, we will still be slaves even if we die. Even after we die. Oh boy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, it's a transition. <laughs> I'm going to talk first about Justina Ireland, um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about. The YA community. Yeah, because that's, a, uh, that's yeah. a big thing that, you know, she's been vocal about. <laughs> she has been. So Justina Ireland uh, grew up in a trailer park in San Bernardino. She's biracial. And she said growing up, she could never find books that she wanted to read. Librarians would give her books about black children dealing with poverty and racism, like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. But she said she wanted to read to escape not to read about black kids suffering. (laughs) She loved fantasy, she loved horror and thrillers, but she always felt that the black characters were always the first to die and that the books weren't written for her. They were written for white kids. She enlisted in the army to pay for college. Uh, She served as a linguistics expert specializing in Arabic, and she never really wrote when she was younger. She said she was a a huge reader, but that doesn't transition into writing later. Yeah. And she started writing about 10 years after enlisting in the army because she had a daughter and she wanted her daughter to read about books written for her. Now, her first book didn't sell. And she was surprised uh, when she had signed with her editor. She had been told that the industry was looking for more main characters of color. It was 2010, though, and I think The Hunger Games had just come out, and the industry was looking for a hit, and they were starting to question if a book with a person of color at the forefront would actually do well. And publishing companies were telling her that they couldn't connect with Ireland's main character, who was black. Ireland and her editor took this to mean that they couldn't connect with a person of color. She then wrote a similar book about a white girl because, as she said, she wanted to get published— And this book, Vengeance Bound, which she says was terrible, was picked up right away by Shyman and Solster within a month after it had been submitted. Really? Yes. Now, neither Vengeance Bound, which came out in 2013, or her next book, With the Person of Color as a Main Character, Promise of Shadows, which came out in 2014, did particularly well. And because of that, she kind of figured that she wouldn't get another shot with a major publishing house, which she says, in a sense, just lifted off the burden and all of the pressure. And she started writing Dread Nation. And while she was writing it, she was also getting her MFA in writing for children and young adults at Hamline University. So now I'm going to talk about her inspiration for um, Dread Nation. And she said she was inspired by reading the graphic novel Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. My mom is a big fan of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, well, listen to what Justina Ireland has to say about it. She got super mad. She thought it was a good idea, 
but she said that she couldn't believe historically that these women who couldn't dress themselves would be out fighting zombies. <laughs> Valid. Valid. And she says, never in the book do you find out how poor people survive. And she said that even after she brought it back to the library, she just kept on thinking about it. And she kind of came to the idea that it would never have happened that way, that it would have been poor white women in England trying to work out how to kill the dead while, like, these rich people continued to go to parties. And then she started thinking about what would it have looked like in America? And she was thinking, oh, no, they would have had the slaves fighting the zombies. And that's how Dread Nation came about. <laughs> I love I love how that, like, the lines that that took to get here. That's in- you know, it's so funny, and I get in trouble for this when I'm around my, like, not-as-nerdy friends, where I'm like, no, but historically that wouldn't have worked, and that's why this fantasy movie is stupid, which, like, didn't take place. But I totally understand that line of thought where yeah. it just bugs you because historically, even though this is fiction, it wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I wanted to talk about how she based Jane, the main character, um, kind of on Huck Finn, it's her response. She I says thought, to Huck I Finn. thought the, these characters had a had a, uh, a kind of Huck Finn. She what's does. his name? Mark Twain feel. Yes. They all do. Yes, and she said because the book was set in the time when Huck Finn was written, she kind of wanted to give readers like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. In the same way, she feels like she would have done it if it was written in the same time as To Kill a Mockingbird. She, yeah, that would have been the characters that she was basing her main character on. Yeah. She says she loves Mark Twain. Um, She acknowledges that there are a lot of problems with Huck Finn, but as she says, it was very progressive for the time and everyone was racist then. And that Huck Finn was questioning the world around him and, you know, having conversations with the people in power and with himself questioning the status quo. And that's what she wanted Jane, her main character, to be doing. Yeah, I, this, I definitely feel a, a, a really good Mark Twain vibe. Right. In and also, Nation. once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Yeah. I was rereading some sections of the book and I was thinking, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So she says when she first started writing it, like I said, her first two books hadn't done very well. She wasn't a good enough writer to tell it. And she admits that her first two books weren't in her mind, very good. I haven't read them. I can't speak to them. So she wrote a messy draft, went and got her MFA. Then the conversation about about Black Lives Matter started springing up across the nation. And, of course, culturally, this is impacting her as well and her questioning what's going on around her and how it's impacting society. And she said it, she worked out how to write this book. While this is all going on, she became a part of a controversy over representation of people in color in YA literature, young adult literature, I should say. And she started getting a lot of attention because of this. Now, I'm going to talk about this really briefly. I mean, we could do a literally whole podcast on the YA industry, and especially right now, and a representation of people who aren't white. Yeah. Ireland is fighting for more authors of color to be in the industry and to be recognized in the industry. So the children's and young adult literature world is very, very white. Of the 3,700 books published for children and teens in 2017, 340 were about children and teens that were black. This is according to the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin. And here's the thing. Of those 340 books, 100 were written by black authors. Now, she's not the first person who tried to change children's lit. Um, There is a New York Times article by Walter Dean Myers that I will link to written in the 80s, and he talks about how in the 1920s, um, W.E.B. Du Bois published the first magazine for black children called The Brownies Book, and it folded after a year because of lack of funding. 
then in the 60s and 70s with the civil rights movement, uh, blacks were in the public consciousness and the industry started calling for more works written by African-Americans. A fair amount were published. And initially they did really well. Some uh, big authors like Sharon Bell uh, Mathis, Ray Shepard, Mildred Taylor got a lot of recognition. But by the time Ford left office, the black experience was no longer a hot political issue, and there was a huge decline in books for children by black authors. In 1974, there were 900 children's books written on the black experience, and by 1984, there were half as many. Really? Mm-hmm. And he said that black authors were perceived, again, as not being able to sell well. And he says that in the 1980s, this is when he's writing it, that They were going to have to wait to get more black authors and children's literature for the next round of race riots. It's kind of what happened. Yes. And he says that if all children, white and black, all colors, are not exposed to the black experience, there will be another racial crisis because they're not reading another point of view. They're only reading one point of view. Yeah. So Vulture's Leela Shapiro, who I'm going to link to a few of her articles, she has written extensively about the YA world right now in this particular controversy— thinks that today's issue, which Ireland is involved in, started in 2014 when YA author Ellen O started tweeting about we need diverse books after the organizers at Book Expo, which is the biggest publishing trade show in the world, put together a panel of acclaimed children's authors and didn't put a woman or a person of color on it. Oh, man. Come on, guys. Yes. And this, again, started trending on Twitter around 2015. They were Twitter was calling for more diverse books with hashtags like we need diverse books, like I mentioned, and own voices. Publishers put out a call for more diverse novels, but there were more being written. They were just being written by white authors for the most part. Now, the YA children's literature world has a reputation for politeness. And I actually think this is similar in a lot of art circles where you don't criticize the other's works. You're very complimentary because the idea is if you're not, you'll just get booted from the industry and no one will work with you. No one will touch you. No one will speak well of your book. Yeah. And I think Ireland was one of the first people, if not the first to do this. But she got a advanced copy of a book called The Continent by Kira Drake. And she tweeted out a chapter-by-chapter analysis of the book, calling it out for being racist and basically propagating the white savior narrative. This was right before Trump was elected, and her tweets ended up going viral. The book ended up being pulled by Kira Drake herself so she could do revisions on it because she says she didn't realize what she had been doing. I know Kira Drake got a lot of flack on Twitter. Um, I also know Justina Ireland got a lot of flack on Twitter. She received death threats, rape threats, a letter to her editor telling them to drop her. She got negative reviews on her own books, which brought them down to one-star ratings on Amazon and on Goodreads. Now, this isn't the only book that has been called out for problems, especially since Ireland. And I think it started kind of a trend, whether for good or for bad, sometimes for right or for wrong, where people are pointing out problems in books Um, I know The Black Witch by Laurie Frost was called out for being racist. A birthday cake for George Washington, which was written and illustrated by people of color, ended up being pulled by um, Scholastic because they felt it gave a false impression of slave life. Now, Alvana Ling, who is the editor-in-chief of Little Brown Books for Young Readers, told Vulture that those tweets, as well as some for other books that received a lot of Twitter criticism, says it's kind of created this culture of fear in publishing houses where no one wants to get called out, no one wants to get labeled a racist, no one wants to publish the racist book. She's of Taiwanese descent, and she says it's not necessarily a bad thing 
and that most people in the industry wouldn't really dare to disagree with Ireland and what she's saying. However, a few have said she's a bully and how it's super harmful to an industry in which they're trying to protect kids from bullying and that she's creating kind of a Twitter storm and aiming her followers at this poor topic, at this poor, you know, like author. Author, yeah, author. Yeah. I think the publishing house can take it. Yeah. I want to read a quote um, from Francine Prose, The Problem with Problematic, in um, the New York Review of Books Daily. I'll link to this article as well. She says, the culture of young adult fiction is partially dedicated to helping young people avoid and resist bullying, yet it is being shaped by online posts whose aggressive, even ferocious tone could itself be described as online bullying. One is reminded how, under authoritarian regimes, writers have been censored and persecuted for referring, in their work, to the sufferings that their rulers would rather not acknowledge. This is what Justina Ireland says. The problem in the YA community isn't criticism, whether vitriolic or benign. It's the system of exclusion of the stories of marginalized groups as told by marginalized creators. Any article that aims to tell the full truth of the YA community doesn't address the hefty price creators of color, especially women of color, pay in just existing in such a space is missing what truly makes YA toxic. It isn't vocal criticism. It's the same racism we've been seeing continually rear its ugly head since forever. Ling, the editor I was talking about earlier, said that it is hard for new writers to get published no matter what their race, but 80% of editors are white. And she says if you're taught any, you're taught as an editor that any book you buy is a book that ideally you love, and if you're not used to reading books about characters who aren't like you, then it does make it harder for people of color to break through. Now, I haven't read The Continent, and I certainly didn't read the advanced copy. wasn't given to me. Yeah. But the tropes that Ireland was pointing out were very questionable. And I mean questionable as in, yes, they seemed bad. Yeah. I mean, she there's a the white girl is coming down from her. Yeah, kind of like futuristic city in the sky. Right, her very ideal society. And she's helping these native peoples stop uh, fighting. And on re- the continent. Yes, and rebuild their societies mm-hmm. based on on ideas from the society that she came from. Um, I, there were ideas of Asian people who were modeled after uh, characters of Asian, Asian descent yeah. that were a lot of stereotypes. Yeah. Of vicious people called, I believe, the Topi. Yeah. Which were a lot like Native Americans who, you know, almost rape a character. Yeah. And it's like this, this kind of like benevolent colonialism when we know that colonialism was pretty much never benevolent. Well, we know. In the real world. Yeah. 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 And I don't think Kira Drake set out to write this, you know, book with a lot of, you know, not racist undertones. stereotypes (laughs) and undertones. I think a lot of it comes from the literature that we read. She said she modeled the topi on the... uh, Urukai, uh, from Lord of the Rings. The Urukai. Urukai, yes. Urukai, Urukai. However, if you look at you know Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who are the uh, people who started writing fantasy, you know, and kind of have made the fantasy world what it is today, they were World War One veterans, and yeah. the you know in Lord of the Rings, which I love, the only dark people that you see are people are working, for working for Sauron. Sauron, yeah. You know, who is the, the evil? Easterlings. 
man taking over the world. Now, you know, see, uh, Tolkien was fighting in World War One. The Turks were evil they if, were, to the British yeah. Empire in yeah. World War One. whether or not they were. I mean, they weren't evil, but that was the enemy. And I know that he based the Yurikai off of the Mongols. Oh, So really? when she's also writing about yeah. these, you know, people based on the Yurikai, it does come from a place of a white man seeing a distant culture and basing evil people off of them. Yeah. To conclude... How are writers of color doing in 2018, especially after this latest round of quote-unquote race riots and consciousness and people wanting more diverse books on Twitter? They have been doing better. There are five major young adult fantasy books by black authors coming out this year. But at this all-time high for the industry, it is still a very small amount of young adult fantasy to be coming out by black authors. Yeah. But a lot of people would argue that it still isn't enough. Yeah. And that more writers of color should be getting published, that you need more writers of colors in the publishing industry. Uh, not writers of colors, editors of color yeah. in the publishing industry. Yeah. To, ha- to read something and connect with it in a way like, oh, you know, like. Also to read something and say, this is wrong. That's true, That too. this shouldn't be written. <laughs> yeah. The, the continent maybe needs a little, right. a couple more rounds of revisions. And um, Jennifer Trout, who I will also link to this blog post that she wrote, had problems with a book. That got called out for being racist. And she writes about, yes, I wrote a racist book and the blame ultimately falls on me. But also there were many, many people in the industry that read this book and allowed it to be published. And I think there's also this idea in the YA industry that they're just looking for that hit. The next Hunger Games. The next Hunger Games. And they are just wanting to push these books out in hopes that they're going to have this big hit. And a lot of little issues get ignored. Yeah. Justina Ireland has started... Um, a database for they're called sensitivity readers where writers from marginalized backgrounds who are willing to consult authors writing characters with experiences outside of theirs will come in and read the book and say well this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong and it's a cottage industry that I don't know for better or for worse is used quite a lot now because again no one wants to get called out on Twitter um and again, like they don't always have to be used. Like you can use them, but you don't have to take their advice either. Yeah. Um, but as far as Dread Nation goes, I think it's doing pretty well. I couldn't find exactly out exactly how well it's selling, but it's gotten great reviews. It has a lot of buzz. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a good time to say, how did we like it, Kyle? I really liked it. I thought it was really well written. I like the starky tone. I like the and once you said Finn the, the Huck Finn, Mark Twain tone, I really like. Uh, I don't think this is a spoiler, but I love that this was a YA book which wasn't or didn't have romance as a major centerpiece yeah. in the story. Yeah, just fighting zombies. Just fighting zombies and like a cool frenemy friendship. Yeah. A- and I really liked uh, Jane, the main character, and Catherine a lot. Right. Jane actually drove me crazy. But I, yeah. Because I, and, and Ireland says she kind of bases it on herself where she can't keep her mouth shut. Yes. And if she sees something I love wrong. It. <laughs> and. I liked that as a character trait, yeah. but throughout the book, I just keep on wanting Jane to just not say something. Jane, you're going to make it worse. You're making it worse for yourself. I, I laughed out loud at times reading it because of like Jane's kind of snarky, dark sense of humor. I also was extremely disturbed at times while reading it. Yes. Uh, the preacher character is pretty rough. 
Um, but yeah, I really liked it. What'd you think? I really enjoyed it. And I like it so much more too after doing research on it and, yeah. you know, learning how Ireland, uh, Ireland read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Also listening, to, I listened to her, um, on some podcasts, which I'll link to as well. And she is so just charming and yeah. fun to listen to and very eloquent on, you know, what she's writing about and what she wants to say. And I love the idea that no, this is not this how is not when the how zombie attack happens, it would go. Yeah. Which is so true. One of the cool things in it, too, is that the weapons that the girls use in fighting zombies are farm tools. Which she said was on purpose. Yeah. It, ha- because, I, it had to be. Right. Because this is what they would have access to. Yeah. Yeah. She and, didn't want a lot of guns. Yeah. Because she said during the Civil War, you didn't really have multiple fire guns. It was just one shot. Yeah. And that actually sometimes they wouldn't even work. Yeah. I also like that, uh, I mean, in this world, it's it's former slaves who are protecting the populace against zombies. And they're using, it's like, it's the new form of their oppression of like, you used to, you used to pick cotton and work in the fields using these tools. Mm. Now you're going to use these same farming tools in a different way to fight these zombies, but you're still oppressed. You're still, like, doing the dirty work for us. Oh, yeah. I thought that was really, really clever and and just really smart of her. It's an alternate history. We've talked about alternate history before in our, um, oh, my gosh, what was it called? What did we talk about alternate history? uh, The Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick, yeah, Man on the High Castle. Man on the High Castle, one of our first episodes. But it was one of those alternate histories that... I really enjoyed it. was a fresh perspective. I feel like it's Definitely. not like, what if the Nazis won, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a... this was an, a, And because it's told from the point of view of a black character, I feel like it's not a point of view that we do see a lot. Yeah, definitely. And I also, again, relating it back to Ireland, but how she says that it's actually fun. Like, yeah. And it's true. Like, a lot of material about slavery is really dark, as it should be, because it was a really dark time, and it was a horrible, horrible thing. Just hearing you talk about the idea of zombies is yeah. terrifying and sad and heartbreaking, but it's a lot of fun. It is. I actually had a really good time, and yeah. I, I was nervous in the action scenes. Yeah. You know, I got all of that, too, and I love a good action scene in books. Yeah. The action scenes were written really well, and, like, she's she's such a snarky, you're always, I don't know, you're right, Jane said a lot of stupid things, like, you know, she couldn't keep her mouth shut. I was always rooting for her. <laughs> I was never not behind Jane. I was like, you get it. <laughs> I like her friend, Catherine. Catherine's I feel like great I'm too. more of a Catherine, too, where I'm, yeah. like, going to be quiet, yeah. I'm going to, you know, let someone else yell, yeah. and then be like, no, let's just be quiet, and hopefully walk around it. Carry a big stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I identified more with that, but it was good to have the juxtaposition and how these yeah. two characters and dealt their, with it. Their relationship was great, too. I also want to cycle back to the YA controversy because I feel like it it's a hard thing to cover because there's so many different sides that come out of it. And it's this really interesting thing that has happened that I want to point out where it's kind of a mob mentality. That I, as a rule, don't approve of Twitter mob justice for the most part. No, I completely agree that you have the right to tweet out your feelings. Yeah. However, you what they are. Like, I, I do believe in free speech. But in this article by Leela Shapiro, she was talking about people, uh, not even the continent, um, but what was it called? Um, the um, the Black Witch, where people were saying, oh, I haven't read it. I read this blogger's review of it that took it down, and I yeah. don't need to read it because she said it's bad. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of this idea that people who aren't reading the book 
are then leaving one star review on Goodreads. Yeah. Who are taking the book down. And I understand the outrage. I don't know. It's a really interesting thing where, yes, you have the right to post that on Twitter. Yeah. But it's interesting how that follows. And it goes both ways where there are people who are saying, oh, I'm giving the good, the uh, continent five stars because these social justice warriors are against it. Yeah. Even though they've never read it. Exactly. No, you're right. And I I read the two quotes of different viewpoints in the YA industry, and I felt like it was really strong for uh, Francine Prose to compare, you know, people tweeting out against racist books to authoritarian regimes. Because yeah. I don't think they're stopping the book from being published. That rarely happens. Kira Drake asked to have her book pulled. Oh, really? Yes. The yeah. publishing company didn't initiate it. She did. And most of the time, these books go on to be published anyway. Yeah. And a lot of times, the controversy kind of helps them. Yeah. They get, they sell more yeah, they because sell of more it. Because, of that. because people want to figure it out and, and, you know, figure out what's going on. A, a similar thing happened with the Veronica Roth book we covered, actually. And oh, we yes. did it. She was the but this, But it was, that was after we recorded our episode, so we didn't get to talk That's about right. it. That's right. Um, I don't know. I I under like I don't like Twitter mob justice and I really hate it on either side when it gets goes to death threats and rape threats. Like that's right. disgusting. However, their anger does bubble over and the fact that there haven't been, you know, very many YA books with people of color out, I feel like it just it came to a head and and this like Twitter anger bubbling over is is part of that and if it takes that to start changing things, I guess that's good, but it's also, I don't know, the the tools with which to make that change make me a little uncomfortable, but maybe I'm just a I also feel like those are the tools at your disposal. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because otherwise, you're, if you if we didn't have Twitter as a platform, yeah, who are you gonna? How are you gonna complain how, about it? Because uh, the industry could just block you. Are you are you gonna get a get a rally together? You know, of people like right. in but front it's of not gonna get Simon the, and Schuster's headquarters. Right. Like, I mean, you could, but I don't but know if it would harder, necessarily yeah. get the attention that yeah. Twitter is that's getting. What it does. Yeah, and right. I, it's interesting because I feel like Justine Ireland also got picked up because she had this voice now. Yeah, she kind of became a spokesperson for it. And I do think that there are other people in the industry who are just trying to tweet things out to get a voice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For, you know, I don't... There are always those people who are going to be like, oh, that's working for her. Let me do it. Yeah. You know? And then um, I think there's a lot of talk about people who aren't of color, who are, you know... A lot of the ones screaming as well, and a lot of the ones saying, "I'm not going to read the book," you know, yeah, yeah. which can come from good intentions. Yeah. But it's this interesting thing of, you know, just pointing a finger. And uh, an article I read said that they're pointing a finger and saying, "Not me. Look, it's someone yeah, else. Yeah, it's someone it's else. not it's me." Not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's very interesting, and I think it's an interesting way that industries in general have evolved, and how there's actually a voice to the crowd now. Yeah. But also at the end of the day, it's actually the money that's going to talk. This is true. At the end of the day, it's sales that are going to like make the decisions. If Dread Nation does really well, maybe there'll be more of a change. Mm-hmm. And like I said, books by people of color have 
about people of color have been on the bestsellers list this year. I mean, we on our podcast just talked about N.K. Jemison's series, which has won the Hugo now three years in a row. And has been doing quite and well. And has been doing quite well and is a phenomenal series. And, and Nedia Korafor, mm-hmm. also, who's getting one of her books adapted. Uh, it's in the production stage for, for HBO. HBO. So I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are well, people of but color yes, who are recognized. But you can also say and, that in the 60s and 70s, people of color were being recognized. And true. then race became a not non-issue again. Issue. Or so I think it's more like, is it going to continue more than like... Or is it just going to, is it going to eventually kind of teeter out? Yes. Is this an up and down trend or yeah. is this an actual change in the industry? I'd like to think it's an actual change. I'd, I feel like the young kids these days, they're very socially conscious. Right. <laughs> Maybe yeah. we're going towards a better world. Maybe. Uh, on the other hand, there are other things in our society that make me think that maybe we're not. Yeah. Um, and also, I think uh, what Jennifer Trout was saying, that it actually does come from the publishing industry. Yeah. That it's who is reading these books and who is publishing them. And who is being represented by the gatekeepers. Yeah. Well, as these baby boomers start to retire and we get some younger people working in these publishing industries, I feel like that's a way to hopefully facilitate a change. You know, mm-hmm. people who are a little more socially conscious and, and and exposed to more, a little more socially minded, not living in that same like kind of 1950s headspace that a lot of baby boomers come from. Right. A lot of these older the, a lot of people from the older generation are the gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. Older men, specifically, mostly. Yeah. And as they start to retire and new people come to take their place, hopefully... You know, it'll be interesting to see how the industry evolves or yeah. whether it does evolve. Yeah. So Dread Nation, we recommend it. I definitely recommend it. There's I thought a, it was a ton of fun. Yes. And regardless, Justina Ireland wrote a great book. Regardless of any controversy, of anything anyone has said, it's a fun book. Sure that I is. think you can enjoy no matter what your race is. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRAPodcast. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. You can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Dread Nation, Twitter backlashes, <laughs> Twitter front lashes, and uh, zombies on our Facebook page and our Twitter where we're going to post some of the articles we used in our show. Our producer is James Foey. Our logo was done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with one of our birthday episodes. Claire's birthday, to be exact, where we're going to be talking about Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, one of the pivotal comic books of the 80s. And you can learn why I picked that for my birthday. (laughs) Thanks, guys, and we'll see you in two weeks.